Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hey, Ronnie, are you free for a webinar on Tuesday, June 6th at 12 noon Central Time? Maybe. What's the topic? Creative Compliance Communications in Conservative Cultures. Hashtag alliteration. Like how to make compliance more entertaining, engaging, and relevant for employees, and how to do it in a work environment that's traditionally conservative? Yeah. Cool. Who's speaking? You are. Who am I? You're the founder of Learnings and Entertainments, and you used to head up a comedic compliance communications business with the Second City. Okay, great. I'd listen to me. Great. Join Ronnie and me to discuss techniques for creatively communicating compliance in conservative cultures. Tuesday, June 6th at 12 noon Central Time. You can sign up by texting the word communicating, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-N-G, to 44222 on your cell phone. That's communicating to 44222 on your cell phone. Question today is, what is a chief compliance officer's options and responsibilities in a situation where the company is doing wrong? What's prompted me to talk about this is there have been a few questions along the way uh, from people about uh, particularly uh, compliance officer liability in situations where things go wrong. But also just today, uh, my good friend Ryan McConnell from Houston uh, sent me a link to some news items around Hui Chen, uh, who many of you know is the compliance advisor at the fraud section at the Department of Justice in Washington. She's recently started a Twitter uh, campaign, I guess you would call it. Uh, if you want to check out her tweets, it's at Hui Chen, H-U-I-C-H-E-N, ethics, E-T-H-I-C-S. And uh, just to give you a flavor of this, one of her tweets uh, just from a few days ago was, as a CCO, I had been told to back off investigations. My persistence was met with hostility and withholding of resources, but not firing. I'm not going to elaborate too much on what's going on with Away because you can just do a Google search or uh, you may already be aware of the news anyway, but she has been pretty uh, direct about her uh, feelings about what's going on at the department right now and with the federal government generally. But I think that this note from Wei Chen talking about the fact that you know, hostility and withholding of resources were there, but firing didn't seem to follow is a very important point. What you don't want to be as the chief compliance officer or the director of compliance or whatever your title is, is cover for wrongdoing. You know, we've often talked about in the past in some of these podcasts, and if you've seen me speak before, and if you've been to any conferences, there's a lot of talk about paper programs. Well, you don't want to be a paper CCO because that's not good for your reputation. That's not good for the goals of having a compliant organization. And ultimately, and there are other podcasts on this, so I'm not going to go into this too deeply, it could also lead to personal liability in certain circumstances. The Volkswagen case comes to mind, but there are other cases as well. But I think the more important thing here is what is the role of a chief compliance officer? Certainly, you are going to be responsible for marshalling resources. You're going to be responsible for putting together a plan. You're going to be responsible most times for diagnosing and 
and being familiar with the compliance risks of your organization and how to approach those risks in an efficient way. Uh, They're all the day-to-day items, but at core, are you the conscience of the organization? Are you meant to be the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, when something goes wrong? I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, I think that it doesn't get tested a lot because most organizations, while they may have some issues here and there, and there are going to certainly be bad actors in every organization of size, and there's lots to root out that's inefficient or wrong in many organizations, uh, the use of a compliance officer as cover is probably pretty rare. So the, the instances where you would really have to be the canary in the coal mine and perhaps quit your job, perhaps uh, raise the alarm to the board of directors or, or do whatever you could is pretty rare. And so it's not tested that often. But I think it's really core to what this role is all about. And it defines a difference that we've talked about before and that is often a common topic at uh, meetings, particularly if you go, for instance, to an SCCE meeting, if you ever have heard Roy Snell speak, you know that there's this continued debate about the difference between the general counsel and the chief compliance officer. And I think this goes to the heart of it. Because if you're the lawyer for the company, you're not going to go out and ring the bells and raise the alarm and be in a, a clear advocate for, for this position. Because that's not your role. Your role is to protect the company. Uh, in the company's interests in a legal sense. But that's not what the compliance officer does. And I think that this, more than anything else, draws that distinction that Roy and others have talked about before between what the compliance officer's fundamental role is and what the company lawyer's fundamental role is. So back to our initial question. What are the responsibilities and options that a compliance officer might have in such a situation? Well, we talked a little bit already about what the responsibilities are, and I think there's a core responsibility there to the organization and to the board of directors, the governing authority of the organization, as the guidelines call it, to raise the alarm in in the extreme circumstances. And, And if you're not getting the response that you expect or need to get from the board of directors, possibly leaving. You know, what's called an, when you're uh, an attorney and you leave and you're forced to withdraw from representation, it's often called a noisy exit. <laughs> and uh, uh, such a thing, I think, is called for in extreme circumstances when you're a compliance officer as well. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the developing case with Wei Chen at the uh, Department of Justice, um, whether there's a noisy exit or not. There's already a noisy existence. <laughs> Perhaps there'll be a noisy exit too. I, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Maybe things will temper. But I think clearly the, the responsibility in a circumstance where things are going wrong is to, to attempt to uh, let the governing authority of the organization know, make sure that you have, as the compliance officer, raised the alarm appropriately And then as a final measure, if nothing else is working, uh, remove yourself from the situation. Don't be a cover. Don't inadvertently give the organization the appearance of complying with law, regulation, and uh, avoiding misconduct if that, in fact, is not what's going on. Uh, So I think as far as responsibilities go, that's pretty clear and that's pretty direct. But what are the options I think there are two primary routes. One is our in one group is 
the uh, inside options and the other are outside options. The inside option is uh, what we've already discussed, going to the board of directors. Presumably, if you're responsible for compliance, you have FaceTime with the audit committee of the board of directors or other subdivision of the board of directors on a regular basis. If you don't, then your organization doesn't have a uh, relationship that is consistent with what is expected by the sentencing guidelines and other best practices. But if you don't have it, you don't have it. But if you have it, that's probably the easiest and most defined route is going to the board of directors, laying out the case for what's going on or what's what's happening or what's not happening that you uh, believe should be happening, that, that constitutes either misconduct or, or some other grave issue. So going to the board is probably the, the clearest factor. If you find yourself unsure about that or worried about it, uh, then I think you have to ask yourself some serious questions. Why are you concerned about going to the board of directors? Is it because you don't normally have the opportunity to go to the board of directors? Uh, maybe that's the case. Or is it because you, based on prior experience, prior actions, you're concerned about the board of directors' response? I think that is probably the more concerning of the two. I can tell you from personal experience, I know of a couple of compliance officers that had some serious issues with, no surprise, the executives of an organization and felt the need to go directly to the board of directors. In both of these cases, it was a difficult decision. It was probably very anxiety-provoking to prepare and, and go in front of the board of directors and deliver those difficult messages. But in both cases, it worked out really well. I think what you will find is with the vast majority of boards these days, if directors are tuned in to what's going on in the world, if directors are worried about their own liability, about the liability of the organization, about the reputational risk of the organization, all the things that we see in the headlines day in, day out, the board is generally going to do the right thing. The board is generally going to be on your side. And I certainly understand the trepidation of going in front of the board and delivering difficult and sometimes alarming information. But again, I know of two specific situations that had to do with some serious misconduct on the part of executive leadership of those organizations where the compliance officer went in, gave them the bad news, told them about the not-so-great options that they had, and the board took decisive action in both cases. And the compliance officers, one of them has moved on, but not because of that, and and the other is still with that organization. So I think while there is a high barrier and and a lot of potential concerns that that you would have as a compliance officer before going to the board, the cases that I know of, again, again, only a, a small sampling, but the cases that I know of personally, the board has done the right thing. And I think that you have to rely on the fact that the board is the ultimate arbiter of what goes on in the organization, that they are going to take the best interest of the organization to heart. And if you have a serious, potentially devastating issue that you need to take to them, that they're going to do the right thing and and support you. Uh, I mean, I think you have to kind of take that leap of faith. So I think that's the first option. Another option, depending on the circumstances, another internal option is to work with the the executives. If, if this is an issue where you feel like you're going to have some support um, either from the CEO, CFO, chief auditor, general counsel, the other you know significant um, centers of power within the organization. If, if you feel you can, you can bring them in as advocates for, for your position based on prior experience, then obviously the more support you have, 
to try to make a change or try to address a serious issue that's that's going to be uh, to your benefit. That obviously varies from from situation to situation. If the board is sort of you know the last and best uh, hope internally with an organization, probably the first line of defense is is to work with your fellow executives or or the executives of the organization and find advocates that are going to fight for the position. If that's not available, there are a few external options to consider. One is to bring someone in. If you have the ability to hire counsel, uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't, or if you have the ability to hire a consultant or somebody else to do per- perhaps do an assessment or a specific uh, investigation, bringing in somebody from the outside, an impartial third party, particularly if the issues at hand are very delicate and have to do with one of those executives, that can be a good way to sort of distance yourself or anybody else internally from the politics of the situation and have a third party, an independent third party come in. And that individual or that organization can then say, here's what we found. We looked into this. Here's what the best practices are. Here's what other organizations are doing around this. And this is why this doesn't make sense and or is, is violates your policy or violates the law, perhaps. Having that independent voice come in and then allowing them to talk either to the, to the uh, CEO or the other executives or to the board of directors can be very powerful. And it puts a, a layer between you and, and the issue at hand, particularly if you uh, anticipate or are concerned that there might be some sort of allegation of bias or, or some other politically sensitive issue that might come up if the compliance department was to do the investigation or review. So that's a pretty, a pretty good option to consider if you have the ability. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that expensive. I know when you talk about internal investigations, particularly if you're going to hire a white shoe firm, that might be uh, prohibitively expensive. But if you have a very specific issue, a specific incident, you'd be surprised. I think you can find people out there, I'm waving my hand wildly right here, by the way, you can find people with experience that have done internal investigations or have done assessments or benchmarking exercises that can come in and, and identify these issues uh, and be a buffer for you. And then the last option, which I guess is technically an external option, is to put yourself external. I already mentioned it. Uh, you know, y- you might find yourself in a position where you just can no longer, that your tenure at the organization is just not tenable. What you don't want to do is put yourself, again, in the position. The one thing you can't do is put yourself in a position of being an enabler for something that you feel or, or know through evidence is pretty clearly a, a violation of, of either a significant uh, uh, internal or, or organizational policy or the law. You just can't do it. You can't put your personal reputation on the line. As I mentioned, I'm not, again, not going to go into it right now, but if you want to listen to some of the other podcasts about potential liability for corporate compliance officers, there is a case to be made that there is some, you know, could be liability depending on what you knew and when you knew it. And you don't need that in your life. It's a hard choice to make, but in some circumstances, I, again, I know of some cases and and some cases have been made public where compliance officers have left. And when a compliance officer leaves uh, an organization, uh, I think oftentimes there are questions around why did that happen? You know, if it was a career move, then that's, you know, an obvious reason. But uh, sometimes there are interesting moves <laughs> where people leave places and you're wondering why did, you know, they were, they weren't there that long or, 
they left under interesting circumstances. Well, you know, there's probably some good reason behind that. And it's not the option that you want to pull the trigger on first. I think you want to try to uh, find a way to get to the board, give the organization, particularly give the board of directors the opportunity to do the right thing because uh, in many cases they have done that. But your options are, I think the ultimate answer here uh, on the query as to what your options are is your options are actually pretty limited if you are being thwarted in some way. If you're being thwarted, your options are pretty limited to going to the board and, and undoing the blockade that has happened or you know finding a way out. And that's not necessarily such a happy answer, but I think that's uh, something to consider. And there's not a great answer, I'm afraid, to, to this question when there's misconduct going on and you are not finding that to you're getting the support that you need. So we're a couple weeks out on, uh, from our next uh, free webinar. It's going to be communicating compliance, how to engage your employees in compliance and ethics. I'm going to be doing this with Ronnie Feldman, uh, who many of you know. It's going to be June 6th at 12 noon Central Time. And if you'd like to sign up, you can either go to our website, moreheadconsulting.com. That's moreheadconsulting.com. Or you can easily do it on your uh, sign up on your cell phone by texting the word communicating, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-N-G, to 44222. That's 44222. We won't sign you up to some crazy mailing list. We won't text you a thousand times. We'll just uh, text you back so that we can get your information and sign you up. But if uh, you want to sign up painlessly, again, text communicating to 44222. And we'd love to see you there on June the 6th. The upshot this time is... When a company is engaged in wrongdoing, the options and responsibilities of the chief compliance officer are rather limited. But a chief compliance officer should avail themselves of the board of directors, because more often than not, the board will take it to heart and do the right thing. This time we have three questions with Garen Bergman. Garen founded Guidant Technology in May 2016 after spending almost 15 years in various compliance roles. Prior to starting Guidant, he spent five years at IDEX Corporation as the Chief Compliance Officer and three years at Dover Corporation as Director of Corporate Compliance, where he developed formal compliance programs for thousands of employees around the world. While at both IDEX and Dover, he focused his attention on a number of areas, including data privacy, safe harbor certification, refreshing the code of conduct, and a global hotline initiative. Garen also has many years' experience in anti-corruption reviews and investigations, internal audit, and audit management. Welcome, Garen. Thanks. Great to be here. Garen, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? How did you get started in compliance? Well, many, many moons ago, I thought I wanted to be a tax accountant. So coming out of college, went to uh, public accounting into the tax department and uh, soon realized that wasn't for me and uh, decided to go to the financial statement auditing route and uh, ultimately into internal audit. When I was uh, involved with the internal audit department at Ingersoll Rand, uh, I was doing a lot of different projects, including the normal controls review, uh, acquisition work, divestiture work, as well as uh, fraud investigations. And it just kind of morphed into a lot of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act work and uh, bribery investigations. And slowly and surely, just kind of <laughs> morphed into more and more compliance work. 
So, um, you know, I, at one point I actually thought I wanted to be an investigator and uh, I had a very good mentor at the time who uh, just challenged me to think a little bit broader and really encouraged me to think about, you know, just taking, uh, taking it, taking my time and uh, thinking about more of a general compliance role versus a specializing in investigation. So I really uh, appreciated his uh, wisdom there and uh, took on a, a, a true compliance position with the Dover Corporation in 2008. That was really my first and uh, first endeavor into compliance uh, in general, building a program and uh, fell in love with it. So um, from there on, it's been all about compliance. Mm-hmm. Of course, as I, I traveled throughout my compliance career, I saw the opportunity for other innovations to take place in the compliance industry. And a year ago, I decided to actually leave in-house and then my chief compliance officer role to start my own business developing compliance applications for uh, compliance programs. And you, you, you mentioned that you, you came out of the um, audit and accounting side. We uh, on the podcast, I've talked to a few people that have had an auditing, audit or accounting background, but for the most part, you run into folks that come out of a, a legal background, like myself, you know, are, are recovering lawyers. But, you know, I think that that perception that it's a legal function has been fading for a while. And since you came the other route, have you noticed some differences over the years, uh, if any, between people that come from a legal background, a legal perspective, or the general counsel's office versus the folks that are coming out of audit? Do you think that there are some strengths for audit that really can shine in a, in a compliance role that might differ from a legal perspective? Yeah, I think the, uh, the big difference is, is really looking at processes and controls from the mm-hmm. uh, internal audit in an uh, accounting type background versus more of the legal perspective and, and trying to convey that message to employees. And that's what I've seen in my experience is that usually the attorneys and the legal background really talk about where the law started, how it got there, all the ramifications of the legal issues, where I think a lot of the times I've seen the the compliance people who have that internal control background, the accounting background, don't really talk about that, but just talk about the impact of not doing something but having the controls in place to help prevent or help detect the issue uh, that's you know taking place and of course remediating that issue. Yeah. So uh Garen, if you could go back in time to before you had taken the compliance specific role at Dover and if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, one nugget if you will that you think would have been helpful to know before you started in compliance, what would that one thing be? I think the biggest thing I I would have told myself uh, many years ago is that not everything's so black and white. Looking at a lot of different issues, there's different ways to approach things. There's different answers, different legal routes, different processes that can be put in place. And to really look at an issue in a black and white context doesn't help your employees, doesn't help your, your business to succeed. And so, you know, being able to look at things from a 360 perspective do a proper analysis and, and really determine what that uh, answer is would have helped me a lot a while back versus, you know, only learning that once I got into compliance and, and being in the industry for a year or two. No, I think that's, that's uh, something that I've heard before that, you, you know, when you, 
when you're in compliance, it's it's a it's a different role than for for example audit, right? Yep. You know, you're not uh, going in and delivering a report on what happened, and you know what are some possible remedies. You've got to you've got to bridge that gap. You've got, you you know something's happened or something hasn't happened that should. And so now you've got the practical reality of trying to administer a change, which is not necessarily easy or black and white. Absolutely. And from my audit background, you either had a process in place uh, or you didn't, or the process worked or it didn't. And, you know, that's not really the, the way that the compliance really works. And of course, employees asking tons of different questions about compliance topics uh, in a broad range of categories, it really isn't uh, always a black and white answer. No, not at all. And then looking in your compliance and ethics crystal ball towards the future, what are one or two trends or risks that you see on the horizon that you think are going to be of utmost importance for most compliance officers in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think uh, one of the trends that we're kind of already seeing, but I think it's actually going to take effect even, even further is that in the area of the length of uh, training, the online training that is taking place? So we're seeing uh, a, a lot of uh, people and in, in the way they approach uh, training perspectives and, and just in, in general uh, life and, and what they're doing to try to take bits and pieces here and there versus sitting down and, and really learning about something for 40 or 50 minutes. So I think that the the, the way that the training is, is developed, the training is delivered, is going to change to be more of the, you know, three to five minute sections, maybe more often than, you know, once a year, three times a year, four times a year that uh, a lot of programs have in place to this three to five minute uh, interval, which might take place once or twice a month, touching the employees more often with those mm-hmm. items that uh, are actually critical to what's happening today in the business. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a, a significant change that will evolve even further over time, even though it already has started. Mm-hmm. I think the other uh, area that I see a future change is the you know, use of the mobile device. You know, we see a lot of uh, people you know, from you know, just in 2011, only 30% of people actually owned a smartphone. And of course, the uh, most recent survey says that 95% of the population has a smartphone. Uh, that that they're actually using today, information is being consumed by it, and that's the the millennial millennials' choice to basically take that mobile device and and have that as an appendage to their body, uh, never <laughs> leave home without it, uh, always uh, getting their information from it, socializing with their friends and peer group on it. So I think that having that compliance program take advantage of something that's already so readily available, already people know how to use, very easy to use, should be considered a game changer for compliance programs, getting training out to people that they've not been able to do easily before, such as a manufacturing or shop floor group, maybe it's a retail store environment, whatever it might be, these people today have the the smartphones available. So, you know, compliance programs taking advantage of that can only mean good things for compliance programs and getting the message across. No, I, I think that, that that second one is particularly important. I think we all kind of intellectually know or, or, or should know that mobile devices, whether they're tablets or in particular smartphones, are have such an outsized role in 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 so many people's lives. A thing happened just two weeks ago that really brought this to to my attention, and and, and two things in particular. One was my wife 
lost her phone when she was traveling in, in DC. And it was a much more significant event than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago, because not only did she lose her telephone to make phone calls on, but she was communicating via email, via Facebook, via text message with the people who she was trying to meet up with. She was using the map to get around uh, in DC, although she's spent many years in DC, so she knows her way around DC. But, but, but it really, you don't recognize how integral the phone has become not just for millennials, but you know, we're solidly gen gen Xers. I'm not going to say exactly how old my wife is, but <laughs> we're solidly gen Xers. <laughs> and in, in losing her phone uh, for just a 24 hour period or, or, or so, uh, and actually it was less than that because she went to get a, a replacement, uh, a t- temporary replacement until we got the, her phone replaced uh, was, was, you know, you take your phone out of out of the mix for, for a half a day, you realize how much we all have come to rely on it and how, how, like you said, it's like an appendage. And the second thing that was really interesting, which I hadn't realized because it's been a long time since I've looked into what they call, commonly call burner phones. You know, my wife got a temporary cheap phone and it was still a smartphone. It was still an Android device. So even yeah, those, absolutely. even the folks that are prepaying their monthly a cell phone use and using the cheaper devices, the non-name brand Samsung, Apple, etc. They're still using smartphone technology. You know, I haven't looked at the pharmacy recent, uh, recently, but you, you know, the places where they sell these temporary phones, I bet it's getting harder and harder to find those that aren't uh, smartphone based. Right, right, and of course, I'm a little biased because I own a business and started a yes. business that uh, you know generating uh, apps for compliance programs, but. Just in the research that I've done in the last year, you know, you see that uh, the mobile device doesn't leave someone's side. It's basically there for 23 hours, 22 hours a day. We see surveys that say that people are on their device more than two hours a day doing non-telephone-type you know, activities. Yeah. And, of course, the millennial generation, you know, they're consuming most of the information from their mobile device uh, every single day. So it's only going to become more and more critical for compliance programs to realize, hey, this is a system that is already available to them and building applications for their compliance program actually is pretty easy. So why not put those two things together and, and really enhance further your program? Yeah, I think I think the jump in thinking is going to be from it would be nice to have and it and it is a, a unique opportunity to it's going to become more and more obviously mandatory if you're going to communicate with a certain population of your employees. I think that's Absolutely. going to be the jump. Yeah. Yep. Well, Garrett, I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes of your time to answer our three questions today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.